Olaso. So this afternoon we'll continue with the alternation between the ultimate and relative bodhicitta, as the teacher suggested, both throughout the course of the life and then when you come to your grand finale, your dying process. With these two, when one is just initially venturing into them, or as a, a novice, it's very easy for them to seem to be a bit incompatible. That is, progress in one may seem to erode progress in the other. And for example, specifically, uh, we started out with the ultimate bodhicitta. Ultimate bodhicitta, of course, Milam Taburta starts out by saying, view all phenomena as if they were dreams. But then if this is all a dream, then you're not really there. In which case, you only appear to be suffering, and so forth. And so it kind of looks like, well, if this is a dream, then who am I supposed to really feel compassion for? There's nobody, nobody really out there, nobody really in here. It's all just a kind of a hall of mirrors, all just empty appearances. And so it can look like it really erode uh, any sense of genuine caring and deep affection and compassion for others. And then likewise, then when you really, when you either encounter your own suffering or uh, really attend closely to somebody else's suffering and the causes of their suffering, you see them really angry, really greedy, or what have you, then they really seem real. I mean, they're, they're, when you see them in anguish, or we've all seen photos, we know, we know, we know history, and we, we've seen videos, we've seen photos of uh, almost inconceivable suffering. And whenever we see that, witness that, even if it's from afar, it seems so absolutely real, it's gripping, right? Which means inherently real. And so that seems to, so each time it can erode the other side, right? But this is just following to the extremes of nihilism, on the one hand, when you're kind of going overboard in viewing all phenomena as dreamlike, and then it's following to the extreme of substantialism, of inherent existence, when we really start attending closely to others in suffering. But as one goes deeper, as generations upon generations of yogis and contemplatives have found, the deeper you go into these, then in fact the more mutually nurturing they turn out to be. And it's not inconceivable. I mean, we can get some, at least we can imagine how that could be, even before we experience it. And some of you may have already experienced this, even in this retreat. But specifically in terms of ultimate bodhicitta, of course the core of this, really the centerpiece, is. I've cited a couple of times now from Kamachakra Rinpoche, the great Mahamudra and Dzogchen master, is above all to be realizing the lack of inherent nature of your own mind, the subject who is here, oneself, and then by seeing, really getting some real taste, some insight into the emptiness of that, then by implication, then as you start to attend to other things, you see they too must be empty of inherent nature. But then consider the implications of that. As, you're, that is, is that as you really see for yourself that that which you've been, that we have been so habitually grasping onto, so tenaciously reifying, grasping onto, myself as someone independent, separate, autonomous, and you see there is simply no such thing. You know, it's like, think, it's like thinking you're Napoleon or you know, just any old silly thing, you know. But you may really think it and then finding, oh man, how could I be so deluded? There was no evidence at all that I was Napoleon. How could I think that? You know, and then you see, oh, it's not only that I can't find Napoleon here, I've discovered there isn't any Napoleon here. I've actually discovered something, no Napoleon. Oh, that's quite liberating. Then I don't get upset when people don't salute me anymore. You know? 
And so similarly, though, when you actually get some insight into that very absence, not that you don't exist, of course, that's silly, just to have to mention that, but you don't exist in that fashion. When you see that there's no autonomous kind of nuclear core of yourself over here, then the very notion of self-centeredness looks just silly. How can I be centered on a self that doesn't exist, as something inherently existent? If there's no real self here, then what does it mean to prioritize the well-being of this self over the, the well-being of other selves? It, it's silly. It's uh, like, what, are you crazy? You have, still have a hangover? You know? And so then we ask, all right, well, I don't exist that way, but you keep on saying to me, I do exist in some fashion. Sure, we do. It's the, it runs through all of Buddhism that there are two truths. One does not negate the other. Relative truth, conventional truth does not negate ultimate truth. Ne ultimate truth does not negate, wipe out, obliterate, make irrelevant, silly. Relative truth, right? And so you get some glimmering of how you don't exist, and then you keep on probing. You keep on with your vipassana. You're probing, seeking to understand. Because there's still causality. There's still causality. Even, there's, even if there's no autonomous self, no one really here, causality. My actions are still influencing. I'm influenced by other people. And that means this word I has to be meaningful. So how is it meaningful? How can I reaffirm, or let's say freshly affirm, my own existence, if not in the habitual way, that I'm really absolutely here and intrinsically so? And then, of course, you see that from moment to moment, I'm always rising relative to the environment, the perspective, other people, situations, activities, conceptual designation, conceptual designation all the way through. And this is how I'm reinventing myself, reconceiving myself. Other people are conceiving of me. I'm conceiving of them. So we see, but this is like a play. This is an ongoing process. It's always dynamic. But the one thing about it is it's never autonomous, and I'm always arising in interrelationship with the whole environment. But now more pertinently, more relevantly, I'm always arising relative to other sentient beings. And, without, so there, with, and here, it, we, we can actually go without any triviality here at all. It's not a semantic trick. Without you, there's no me. Without them, there's no us. Just as without left, there's no right. Without, with no up, there's no down. That's the way it is. You know? And so without object, there's no subject. With no subject, there's no objects. And that's not just semantics. That's just not just a wordplay. It's actually literally true. So I'm rising only relative. I am rising only relative to those who are not I. Right? But this means that but this means that my, my very existence is arising from moment to moment always in relationship with others. And others, from my perspective, is always rising relative to me. And so this is just reality, that it's pratita samudpada. We're all arising in, in this dependent related fashion, intertwining, causally interacting, always in a state of flux. And then Shantideva, I mean, it just springs to mind. I'm just kind of letting flow right on through. But Shantideva, as he attends to something that a number of you have attended to quite deeply and in a very disturbing fashion, as he attended, attends to just the sheer enormity of the suffering of the world, okay, the ocean of suffering. It's not, it's, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say an ocean. 
feeling really quite overwhelmed by that, you know, and kind of wondering, is this, is, is this a burden I need to bear? Is this something I really need to attend to? Again, for the moment, what we attend to is our reality. And is this something I really need to open my heart to, attend to, make real for me? Is this necessary, or couldn't I kind of just back up again and say, everybody, I hope you find Dharma, really good luck with that, but I think, I, can more, I think my own suffering is a bit more manageable. And maybe if I can just get out of some sorrow, slip quietly away, and just wish you all luck, you know, everybody, hope you find a really good teacher, I have found one, and then slip out. It's kind of tempting, because this seemed just overwhelming, right? And so he asks himself, I mean, this magnificent soliloquy, he asks himself, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but this is a, it's right there in the eighth chapter. He asks himself, is it necessary for me to take on the burden of other suffering when it is so massive, so overwhelming? And then the answer comes in. And it is, yes, it is necessary. Why? Because suffering has no owner. And that's the end of the conversation. So then it's just realistic. We're not being pious. We're not being, uh, the word came, uh, bonismo, goody goody in Italian. Is that right? Francesca, bonismo, is that right? Burnismo, burnismo. I just learned this term, burnismo. It's goody goody. We don't have to be goody goody, pious, you know, sugary, saccharine, sticky, sticky, virtuous. It's just being realistic. It's clean as a razor. It's just being realistic. It's, be just, it's being smart. You know. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. Your suffering doesn't exist independently of my suffering. My suffering not independently. We don't exist independently. Therefore, how can I not rejoice in your, in your, in your happiness? How can I not? It's, it'd be like being blind, being like being myopic, like putting on blinkers. How can I not? How can I not empathize with your suffering? Because it intertwined with my We're all together in this. It's just being realistic. And so in this way, the view really deepens, enhances, enriches, makes like a, bo a bottomless pool uh, just because of knowing the way things are. Right? But then similarly, we're coming in from the other side, from the Tonglen, from the relative bodhicitta, where again and again and again, the theme, what's the theme? Attend to others as subjects, not as objects. Not whether you please me or you displease me. Attending to others and whether they're human beings or animals, praetors, whatever they may be. Attending to them as sentient beings and attending closely. And by attending closely, finally, you cannot help but be caring for, attending to, looking after, and watching, watching over. Uh, because as you tend to them, their reality, their reality becomes your reality. Okay, that's quite clear. That's pretty obvious. Oh. But if you keep on doing this, and it becomes really your habit throughout the course of the day, attending closely, and attending closely, and attending closely, as you go to the kitchen, attending closely to the person who there is, is, is ready for you to look her way, and then she smiles immediately, you know? Attending closely to watching the tape, attending closely. And if you're just doing this throughout the course of the day, and it doesn't have to be, of course, all face to face. You could be a yogi living up in a cave in solitude, attending closely with your mind's eye, with your attention. His Holiness being asked, Do you ever feel lonely? He said, No, I always feel connected. I always feel connected to others. Even when I'm in retreat, in solitude, I always feel connected. How is that possible? I'm attending, of course. He's attending. 
when he's practicing meditation and emptiness, then he's attending to that. But when he's practicing bodhicitta or other practices, he's attending, so he always has that sense of connectedness. It's quite natural, right? quite, quite realistic. And so, but you can imagine then, even if you've, you can, you can let your imagination kind of like be a wave coming, like the, the, the bow wave, the wave right in front of the ship before you get there that creates a wave. Your imagination can be the bow wave just in front of your experience saying, you know, this is what's coming. It's kind of obvious. We have imagination here. Let's use it. And that is, if this keeps on being your reality, attending to this person and that person and this sentient being and those over there in Syria and those in Somalia and those in where there's just a, a ship just sank and there was another earthquake and, and there's something really good that happened and there's someone being enormously compassionate and bold and courageous and you're just attending, attending. What's that doing? It's just drawing your awareness away from the nuclear self because suddenly you have a whole bunch of centers. Instead of having only one center surrounded by a whole bunch of its, one subject surrounded by a whole bunch of objects, you've su suddenly living in a, you're living in a multiverse because you're attending for that person from that person's perspective and that person's perspective. You're living in a multiverse and you're seeing, oh, wait a minute, but Annette and Jude's experience, they're the center of their mandala, they're the center of their world, they're the center of their situation, as much as I'm the center of my situation. But then so is Paolo, and so is Francesca, and so is Scott. It, there's, wow, I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of centers. Everybody's a center. Everybody's the one, you know, because you are the one. You're the center of your whole universe, and we all are. Right? But you just make that real, make that a habit. And this is not advanced philosophy now. This is just practical. And the whole notion of a coagulated, dense, con condensed, nuclear self that's over here, so it just, it's, it's getting eroded, like just pouring acid on it. The acid of compassion, probably that's the first time anybody's used that one. But it's just eroding it away. Because this is too real, and this is too real, and this is too real. They're all too real, so the notion that somehow my well-being is more important, but that looks like a joke. Where, where do you come up with that crazy idea? Why would, you, why would anybody think that? Unless you're just not paying attention. So then we see, aha, well, you mean from the, the relative bodhicitta side, ultimate bodhicitta side is just common sense. And then from ultimate bodhicitta side, relative bodhicitta is just um, common sense. And they're completely supporting each other. It's true, isn't it? Looks to me like I didn't, make just, just, didn't just make that up. So before we go back into the practice, here's this theme of in the Tonglen and the loving kindness, the four immeasurables, the compassion, all of these, uh, imbuing them with as much wisdom as possible. You know? Already bringing that union in. And so when we're practicing Tonglen and we're attending to the suffering of others, it's very easy when we, when we alight upon a certain individual, a region of the globe, a community of individuals, it's very easy to alight upon or let the attention linger with and really focus on and make real uh, individuals, communities, and so on, where it's quite obvious they're suffering. And there's certainly plenty of that to go around. Right? And it's every single day. And it's odd, because I, I, I follow the news rather closely. It's, every day it's unique. The headlines are never the same. And yet, from month to month, year to year, decade to decade, it's, it's always the same. In principle, it's just this happened here with that, with that constellation of qualities. 
and, then, and, that concept, and they're all unique, but then they're all fundamentally, this is an ocean of suffering, and it's all rooted in you know, the underlying causes. So it's not so difficult to practice, or kind of we naturally gravitate towards practicing the Donglen, imagining taking or alleviating the suffering, taking the suffering into our hearts and dissolving it there, for what Buddhists call the blatant suffering, what is evidently suffering, whether it's psychological suffering, like mental illness or depression, or whether it's, or it's, or it's bodily harm, it's injury, it's sickness, it's aging, environmental, so many ways. But we can see, oh, that's adversity. So that's quite clear. Yeah? That doesn't take any real deep insight at all. And that also, in terms of world attention, is, that's exactly what draws attention. And it's really it's a wonderful thing that an earthquake strikes, and we so often find good-hearted people around the world then writing checks or governments saying, okay, we have no vested interest, you don't have any oil, you don't have minerals, but we still want to help. Here, have $10 million. We just want to help. And it does happen, thank goodness. But it really does happen. We, we don't need to be too cynical here. The governments sometimes actually help another community just because it's the right thing to do. Haiti is a good, good example. There's so much suffering there, and there's been a lot of aid as well, but the notion that you're making a good investment there, I, I don't think so. You know, that's, if, if you're trying to approach aid there from a self-centered perspective, you might want to double-check that one. You know, not likely. So there's a lot of goodwill, even from governments, which we don't really expect it so much from, as well as churches and synagogues, religious groups, and then simply people who want to do the right thing, who want to be of service. And that's what tends to attract the general attention. But now years ago, I remember it so vividly, it was about 15 years ago when I was a lecturer at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, somehow, I'd, and I don't know how, but there were a couple of professors of environmental studies. I'm in religious studies. And they heard about me, and I don't even know what they heard, but they heard about me. And they said, we've got a problem here. We're teaching the intro course in environmental studies. And bringing these for freshmen, sophomore, mostly uh, uh, lower division, under, so undergraduate students, and lower division undergraduates, we're telling them what's the, what's the state of the globe? You know, what's, ha what's happening in our world here in the late, uh, what was that, 19th, uh, late, late 20th century. Yeah, we're still there. Uh, and it's all bad news. It's really all bad news, you know. And they're getting it for 10 weeks. They're getting it for nine weeks, eight and a half weeks. It's just, here's how we screwed up, and then we screwed up this way, and then we screwed up that way. Now we're screwing up this way. And here are all the problems, here are the solutions, but of course we're not implementing most of them. And, and what they'd found, because there were these two professors, they taught this course year after year, and they're not going to put a happy smile on it, it's really a lot of awful bad news. Uh, and what they'd found was, having taught this repeatedly, by the time they get to the end of the quarter, it was a 10-week a uh, academic term, call it a quarter, the students are just depressed as hell, you know. Uh, and the professors didn't really quite know what to do about that. They're not going to make up some sugary saccharine story at the end. Well, never mind, it's going to be swell. You know, Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny really do exist. And, or God in his heaven, he looks down and he's going to solve all the problems for me. You know, they're not going to make up something. And so for whatever reason, they invited me, I think it was a couple of years, two or three years, they invited me right at the end of the course and said, Alan, give them some hope. <laughs> you know, your religious studies, do your thing. You know? And so... Um, so the gist of it was uh, that what I was sharing with them, and they kept on inviting me back, so I guess somebody thought it was meaningful. Um, and of course, this, this was, had I not encountered Buddhism, I would have very possibly been teaching such a class myself. I was going to be an ecologist, environmentalist, wildlife biologist, activist, the whole thing. That was the most meaningful thing I could think of when I was 19. 
Um, but what I simply pointed to was what I think for all of us is quite obvious. And that is where we have these man-made catastrophes of the, of the water, the air, the sky, the everything, decimation of other species, and so on. And so many ways we're disrupting the balances of nature with global warming, etc. The list goes on indefinitely. Um, where they're man-made, in fact, in many, many cases, I'd say the great majority of cases, scientists with their wonderful methods, their insights, their technology, and so forth, have found out what we've done wrong in many, many cases. They know what we did wrong, they know what the consequences are, and they know what we need to do to rectify things, to balance things out. In many cases, it's not too late. So this is really wonderful science, environmental science, ecology. Uh, the problem in all too many cases is the scientists, as in the case of global warming, this is now a you know, big issue nowadays, it wasn't back then that we knew of, is they know what needs to be done. They tell those in government, in business, and the general population, this is what needs to be done. And then in many cases, it doesn't happen. Uh, it's usually, well, no, but, that, but our can, our, our, we, we can't afford that. Our can, our, we have to think of jobs first. There'll always be some other priority other than saving the environment, you know. Um, well, how can that be? I mean, are we simply stupid? Not everybody's stupid. So why don't the governing bodies and big businesses say, oh, well, this is in our best interest to be thinking, you know, uh, 20 years ahead and 50 years ahead and five generations ahead, because after all, these are our children and grandchildren and so forth, and we're all in this together. We only have this one globe that we know of as being in inhabitable. Uh, but something comes up in that very clear reasoning, and they're called delusion, craving, and hostility. You know, delusion being short-sighted, craving thinking, no, but this is, this is going to be a short-term loss. Well, I, I'll actually have, I won't be able to afford my second Porsche. Or, you know, I won't be able to, I'll have to make some sacrifices here. Or our country will have to make some sacrifices. Uh, this would be good in 50 years, but yeah, but I'm living now, you know. And so short-sighted and then greed and then wanting to blame it on somebody else. And so there's the aggression and hostility. And so that's what gets, in the pro gets, gets to be the actual problem. It's not that you don't have enough scientific knowledge, because often we do. It's not that, there, that laws could not be created and enforced, because they could be, but they're not. And as I was investigating this, it just always came down to the same thing. Ignorance and delusion, getting it wrong, just putting on the blinks, no, we didn't have anything to do with global warming. No, 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 they're just saying that we didn't have anything. Oh, okay, okay, we did. You know. When finally just smacking you silly that it's so obvious that human beings have made a major contribution to global warming. Um, but then greed's an enormous one. Just re the refusal to make any short-term sacrifices, even for the sake of your own children. I call that the guppy mentality. I raised fish when I was a kid, and when a mama guppy gives birth, they don't lay eggs, they give birth to live little guppies. You have to be very careful, because the mama guppy will come around and have lunch on her baby. She'll give birth to her baby and then turn around and swallow it, out one end, in the other. You know. So this is the guppy mentality. But it's human beings and not little fish with tiny, tiny brains. And so I would talk about that. <laughs> this was to cheer them up. <laughs> Don't worry, it's much worse than you thought. Um, but then pointing out, I mean, that's the second noble truth. This is the root of suffering. And it's not all, of course, the impact on the environment. It's how we, man's inhumanity, men and women's inhumanity towards each other, towards other species, and so forth. 
Um, but that also stems from the same causes. It's delusion, craving, and hostility. Uh, so kind of saying, first of all, it's worse than you thought. But then secondly, it's much, much better than you ever imagined. Because unlike what you've heard from many, and not all, evolutionary biologists, evolutionary psychologists, and so forth, we are not hardwired because of instinct, because of genes, because of neuro, you know, neurophysiology. We are not hardwired to have to be as delusional, greedy, and hostile as we have be habitually become. There's really a lot of room for improvement there. It takes skillful means, but there's enormous room for improvement, and there's an enormous amount of evidence to support that claim. This is an evidence-based claim, not a pious religious belief. And so therefore, if we want to solve environmental problems, social problems, ethical problems, problems with the criminal system, with the economy, and so forth, why don't we quit looking at just the symptoms and go to the underlying causes, and we just keep on coming back with those three. Those three. The three culprits, you know. So why don't we start under addressing the underlying ones, and if we're going to do that, why don't we start on our own minds? Rather than pointing the finger at the Republican Party, Democratic Party, China, Russia, whatever you like. You know, why don't we just start here? and Say, okay, I'm going to make one little pool of sanity. That's something I can do. That's one area, my body, my mind, my behavior, that's one little area where I can actually exert a lot of control. You know? So why don't I just see if I can make a sound and sane and harmonious environment in my own body-mind? Why don't I try to live what I'd like to say, but before saying it and talking about it, why don't I see if I can live that, embody that, embody not only a decrease of the mental afflictions, but an increase of wisdom, of compassion, of kindness, of altruism. So maybe I can just start here. I can be in a little environmental green zone, you know. and at least I won't be any doing any damage, and I might actually do some good, you know. And that, oddly enough, was helpful. It doesn't make any of the problems less, but it shows that they're not intractable, and we human beings who've created those problems are not intrinsically hardwired, and there's good evidence for that. And the notion that we are intrinsically hardwired is simply evidence of a severe lack of imagination and a lack of paying attention. Because, again, many people who have that just have this, and you've, you all encounter people like this, just when they think of religion, they think of one thing, like religion's one thing, and it just comes in Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Judaism, and so forth, but it's one thing, and it's stupid. And it's bad, because they have, look at all those religious wars and the bigotry and the witch hunting and the racism, and it's bad, you know? So... Cartoon religion, it's all bad. And I've seen so much crap written by, by these anti-religionists. They treat it as if it's one thing, as if science is one thing. It's so silly. That's why I use the word juvenile. It's you know, sophomoric. It's idiotic. But you write a book like that, and you find a lot of other sophomoric, idiotic, juvenile people, and they say, this is really great. You know, it is not helpful. It's idealization of science that cannot bear the burden of that kind of idolatry and a demonization of religion, which it never deserved. And of course, religious people and scientific people, they're human beings. That's the bottom line. And we're all looking for happiness and wanting to be free from suffering. So as we practice Donglen, I'm going to wrap up because I'm eager to get back to the meditation. As we're practicing Donglen, let's look deeper than what everybody can see. And everybody can see blatant suffering. And it's enormously important. But it's also, it's not that, like we've got it covered that it's all taken care of. 
But there is a lot of attention and a lot of money put to that end, and very rightly. But what about the underlying causes? Underlying causes. And what about not only identifying the underlying causes, but actually bringing antidotes? Remedies that can really, as we now, I think everybody in this room, many people listening to podcasts, we know from our experience that our own mental afflictions are not absolutely hardwired. We know from our own experience that the, our propensities for laxity and dullness, excitation and agitation, are not just hardwired. You've not had the same quality of meditation every single session. They weren't all equally bad. You've seen some spike. Well, that means it must be malleable. And so, to go deeper, this is the, the suffering of change, which is really driven by greed, by craving, by attachment, and saying, aha, even if there's some, somebody, a company, an individual, a country that is affluent because it's so doggone greedy, then one might just feel angry there. You know, how could you? This is immoral. But then if you should go just one step deeper, slip out of the I-it relationship with the greedy ones, and you say, ah, you think you're doing just fine, but I'm sorry, but I see deeper. Your affluence, your, good, your so-called good fortune, and so forth came out of greed which means it's only a matter of time. It's it just guaranteed that affluence, that good fortune that you're experiencing is going to waste away because it's rooted in delusion. And that's not going to last. Nothing that's rooted, rooted in delusion lasts in a static and permanent fashion. So final point. A question that is really worthwhile asking repeatedly is as we see the layers, the dimensions of suffering, the blatant suffering, the suffering that is there that on the surface looks pretty sweet, pretty cushy, like, oh, wow, you got the good life, and it's all rooted in craving, grasping, attachment, greed, and so forth. And on the surface, like, whoa, I wish I had stuff like you got. Uh, and we say, but this is just misery waiting to happen. You know? uh, and you see that, and you feel compassion for that. You go right down to the core. Anyone who's grasping onto one's own body and mind is inherently I, me, mine. Okay, then you're vulnerable. And so then we can ask, all right, given these multiple layers of suffering, when I think all of us here, I don't have really any doubt about that, all of us here would like to bring something good to the world. We'd like to alleviate suffering. Whether we have a large vision or small vision, but I, I know that's common. I've been speaking with you for seven weeks now. What's the best I could do? We can all do something, that's for sure. But what's the best I might offer? Now that I'm somewhat aware, more expansively and in greater depth, the layers, the multiple dimensions of suffering and the underlying causes, what's the greatest I could offer to the world? You know, that final question in the loving kindness, what's my own vision for my happiness? What would I love to receive? How would I love to transform? And then finally, what would I love to offer? What would provide me with the deepest sense of satisfaction? Be of the greatest benefit, the greatest good I could offer. And then you can consider well, I could, like many other millions of people, I could address the blatant suffering. That would be a good thing. On the other hand, not that many people see the underlying causes and know the antidotes for those underlying causes, especially the greed, the attachment, the clinging, craving. But I've got a pretty good sense of that. And I also know that there is, there is something other than hedonic well-being. I know it, I've tasted it, and it's immeasurably sweeter, more satisfying. It's deeper, it's, it's rooted in reality rather than simply pleasant stimulation. So maybe I could help on that level. But then we go down to the, down to the ground and say, but, but all that suffering fundamentally is rooted in ignorance, delusion. 
in self-centeredness and self-grasping. But I've recognized those too as the root. That's not just some doctrine, some religion. I have gotten some real insight into that. And not only that, I've not only seen the diagnosis and see that it's sound, but I also know what the antidotes are. The antidotes actually are there. They are, they are accessible. I've, tr I've been trying them, and they actually, I've already seen they're being somewhat helpful. In fact, I see the cure to samsara. I see the cure to all three layers of suffering, and it's right down there in overcoming self-grasping and self-centeredness with ultimate and relative bodhicitta, and it's all transparently clear now. So now, given my perspective, given the insights that have come forth, what's the greatest I could do? I think maybe the greatest I could do would be help as many people as I possibly can overcome the fundamental roots of self-grasping and self-centeredness. That would be the greatest service I could possibly do for them. Oh yeah, I, I forgot about that. I'm still suffering them for myself. I'm still part of the problem. I still have self-grasping, I still have self-centeredness. And so for me to go out and get, on, get, get up on my white horse and say, da, 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 I have a message for you all. I am the knight in shining armor. Everybody overcomes self-grasping and self-centeredness. But by the way, I haven't. But you should really try. And I think I'm going to run the other way now, <laughs> you know, out of sheer embarrassment, you know, because you look like, kind of like a buffoon, like a, circus, like a clown circus, a circus clown. <coughs> Okay, I want to do that, but I think I need to clean up my act first. Uh, I need to really kind of attenuate, really attend to the weeds in my own garden. So, okay, I think I need to overcome self-centered and self-grasping myself. Uh, but I'd like to be of greatest good, so I think I need to do really a thorough job. To do the greatest job, I have to really kind of clean these out completely. Okay, I guess there's really no option. I think I need to become a Buddha, completely free of all self-grasping and self-centeredness, because that's what a Buddha is. And then I can really be of greatest effectiveness, because I'll be completely healed myself. And then I'll be able to really have the capacity, the greatest possible capacity, to heal others. So that kind of seems like maybe the only thing to do. If I really want to help on the deepest level, then maybe that's it. I really need to become a Buddha. I need to wake up completely in order to help others wake up completely. And that might start a chain reaction. That could be really good. You know, like help 20 people, and they help 20 people, and they help 20 people. We could have like a, a bodhicitta nuclear fission taking place here. Chain reaction. Blow everybody's mind. You know. So that's bodhicitta. Okay, let's practice. Alternate between relative and ultimate. And it will be a silent practice. Olasa. So, we now move to the sixth of the seven points of the seven-point mind training. We've covered right from the beginning. He goes right to the nucleus at the very beginning, right to the essence, right? After a little bit of preamble, very little, goes right to ultimate bodhicitta, which is a new way of viewing reality. And then the relative bodhicitta, the complementarity between the two. And then, so we've gone right to the kind of the bullseye first, and then we're going out to concentric circles. I mean, that whole issue of transforming adversity into the path. And now we're really focusing on lifestyle, 
lifestyle. So the sixth of the seven points is the pledges of the mind training, the pledges, pledges of the lojong. These are promises you're making to somebody, to yourself, not to me or to the, to the Buddha or Samantabhadra. They're really pledges you're making to yourself. And you're, you're making these pledges in order to guard, to protect, to nurture and sustain the core. Okay? That's really what it is. The parallels are everywhere. For example, in Buddhist monasticism, uh, the whole, why would one become a monk? It's so that you can devote yourself single-pointedly all the time to the practice of dharma, to ethics, to samadhi, to wisdom, to hearing and thinking and meditation, and then, to serving out of, and then serving others out of that capacity. So your life, it's designed to be utterly simple. Uh, but we're bringing, that is, I know what it's like to be a novice monk. Uh, unfortunately, we're bringing to, when we get freshly ordained, uh, we're bringing to ordination, bringing to our monastic way of life, all the habits that we had the day before. You know? And that's going to be an awful lot of habits that are really contrary to or incompatible with the whole monastic ideal. So what do you do? How, how, do you, how do you ward off the hordes of Maras of our you know, old habits and mental afflictions and so, stuff uh, from times before we even knew about Dharma, perhaps? And it's for that reason uh, that in order to protect the core, Shila Samadhi Prajna, ethics, Samadhi, and wisdom, that would be one way of looking at the core, in order to protect the core, because that's what will liberate you. You became a monk, if, this is, if you're an authentic monk, didn't, your, it wasn't just your mom and dad made you, uh, then you become a monk in order to achieve liberation, at the very least, perhaps to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings, but at the very least to purify and liberate your own mind. And that which will do that will be ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. But we have all these bad habits, behavioral habits, that will erode, crush, and destroy the core. So therefore, you have one precept, two precepts, 253 precepts uh, as a fully ordained monk. And all of those that are there, it looks like, oh my goodness, why do we see many, need so many laws and regulations and rules and so forth? Well, it's just for a very simple reason. Those, those are the picket fence around your garden to, to protect, protect your garden from the rabbits and the deer and the gophers and the mold, moles and so forth, everything that's going to get in there and ruin your garden and so that you just have a little waste dump, you know, a waste, waste dump there. And so in a similar way, the precepts in the monastic context, they are exactly that. They're like a picket fence, a wire fence to protect the whole point if you're making the sacrifice to become monk, right? And the same thing is true for the Bodhisattva precepts. The primary, the, the root, the avoiding the root downfalls, or avoiding the secondary, the, sec the secondary defects or faults, it's to protect the core. And what's the whole core of the Bodhisattva way of life? What's the core of the seven-point mind training? Ultimate and relative bodhicitta. That's what will get you not only to liberation, get you all the way to perfect awakening. But then, okay, how do you protect that? Because again, we have all kinds of behavioral habits that are completely incompatible with the Bodhisattva way of life. Okay, welcome to 18 root downfalls and 46 secondary defects. Avoid those and you can protect your core. The same thing happens in Vajrayana. I won't go, go into that right now. But here we have... Um, something that is very much embedded in the Bodhisattva way of life, subsumes a monastic way of life without having to be a monk, and then, of course, is laying a foundation for Vajrayana practice, including Dzogchen. So he's given us the core. He said, this is what it's all about. And now if you want to protect that, then consider these pledges in terms of just behavior. And this is calling for mindfulness. 
enriched mindfulness, meaningful mindfulness, authentic and traditional mindfulness in the Buddhist context, which is, again, as I've said so many times, is not this reductionistic model of just bare attention. It is a very rich and wise, uh, oh, just that, a, a very rich and wise way of attending to reality in which you're bearing something in mind. And that's what mindfulness really means. You're recollecting, bearing in mind, not forgetting, not getting distracted. And so this is now prospective memory, prospective mindfulness. That when you get off your cushion, you're sitting in your cushion, maybe you're reading, reading a, a text, one of the various commentaries on the seven-point mind training, and you read, always practice the three principles. Okay, that's the next aphorism, now under the sixth one. So what are the three principles, what are, what are they? Well, the first one, do not contravene or violate your commitments to training the mind. So you've made a commitment here. Don't do anything that is violating that, such as being dismissive of vows or ethics. That is, it happens on occasion that people become immersed in some type of practice they think somehow takes them beyond the beyond the mere rules and regulations which are for other people. You know, oh, I have bodhicitta now, so out of bodhicitta I can really do anything. I'm a Dzogchen practitioner. You know, it's like don't accept or reject anything, which means I'll just do anything that I spontaneously feel I want to do from moment to moment as I am a skywalker. In fact, why don't I just call myself a Luke Skywalker doing whatever I want to do, you know? And then you make a buffoon of yourself and you completely cripple your practice. And so that can happen in various ways. And so he said here... Uh, in terms of the foundation of all of Buddhist practice, and I would really say the foundation of all spiritual practice, it is ethics, it's nonviolence, it's benevolence. So don't be dismissive of vows, they're there for a good reason. Uh, of ethics, it's there for the foundation, so that's the first point. Not uh, regarding, and, and, then, and then in the same, under that same category, do not contravene your commitments to mind training. Do not, re not regarding the mind training to be all that is needed while being dismissive of other teachings. So again, it's so easy. Just because we're human beings. Whether you're a scientist, a philosopher, a Republican, Democrat, or whatever, the political party, it is so easy to slip into a groove and then say, my way or the highway. If you're not following, if you're not my party, if you're not a, if you're not a, you're not a Lojong practitioner, you don't know about, oh, well, well, okay, well, have a nice day. But, you know, my party, we do Lojong, you know? That kind of sectarian nonsense. Uh, bad idea. So do not regard the, the mind training as being all that's needed and, and to the, this exclusivist attitude that, well, I don't need anything. I, I've received now the, the seven-point mind training and that's all you need. Dujum Lingba in the Vajra Essence is so clear about this in terms of what's laid out. It's really a Padmasambhava laying out the path in the Vajra Essence, 400 pages, and it's the, ch the choice of words is so careful. Uh, he says in this treatise, it's the most elaborate of the mind treasures of Dujum Lingba, setting forth the entire path of Dzogchen. The, the choice of words is so, so careful. He said, if you wish to achieve rainbow body in this lifetime, even great transference rainbow body, the bonanza, the, you know, the, ape, the apex, the omega, the knowledge, the teaching, guidance in this text is sufficient. Everything you need to know is here. I accept that. What he doesn't say is, don't look elsewhere. doesn't say that. Really important. So it's fine. I mean, I certainly actually have I emphatically believe it. That that is a complete text. If this is what you want to do, everything you need to know, it's in this text. But you may very well want to, oh, well, how about Bodhicharvatara? 
sure, of course. How about LAMRIM? Of course. How about stage of generation completion practices that didn't come in this? Sure, sure, of course, of course. Why, why, would, why are you asking the question? We just said this is sufficient, but we're not implying don't look outside. There we go. Simple. But again, we see how much sectarian strife, nonsense, idiocy, and bigotry comes from not only admiring, appreciating, and feeling that one's own path is sufficient. That is, if you're a Christian, is that sufficient? Or do you need to be a little bit of a Buddhist and a little bit of Hindu and you know, fill in the gaps? And any authentic Christian will say, no, you don't, you don't need Buddhism to follow, you know, to follow the teachings of Jesus and come to the culmination of those teachings. The teachings of Jesus are quite sufficient. You don't need to be a hybrid. And so there we are. And I know many good Christians, and they stop right there, and they do not say, and therefore if you're Buddhist, you've missed the boat, or a Hindu, etc., etc. No, this for us, this is the complete way, a perfect way, and we're very content with this. But this doesn't mean we can't learn from others. So there we are, it's simple. So the second of these three, of these three principles, do not have a sense of bravado in your mind training. Uh, and that is when you start um, becoming more familiar with, more confident in. Your practice transforming adversity into the path, relative ultimate bodhicitta, and so forth. You may feel, well, I'm really getting along here. I think, wow, I could transform more adversity, and then go out of your way seeking out dangerous people. Like, well, you know, I'm I could, I'm really getting good at. Uh, so why don't I why don't I just walk through Harlem at, at one o'clock in the morning, by myself, white guy? Because um, I'm sure whatever happens, you know, I'll be able to transform it. I'll, I'll show off, I'll kind of strut my stuff. I'm a Lojong practitioner. You know. Or I'm going to go for vacation in, in Somalia. Or I'm going to kind of hang out with the, the Al-Qaeda and see if I can convert them to Lojong. <laughs> it's really good teaching. I'm sure they'll like it. You know. So, okay, that's a little bit of bravado. Not a good idea. So don't seek out dangerous people or situations in order to de demonstrate the potency of your practice. Don't worry. Adversity will come to you. You don't need to seek it out. And then the third point, do not, do not have an uneven mind training. And that is, so see that it's homogenous, that it's even, and that is, for example, bearing harm from humans. So when, when a human being provides you with some adversity, transmuting that, but not from an animal or some other non-human. Respecting some people, whatever, one's chosen people, the people that one, one prefer, but then despising others, loving some people, practicing, oh you're, you're, oh, you're a Buddhist? Oh, good, let's practice Lojong together. Oh, you're, not, you're a materialist? Yuck. We're not going to practice with you. You're an outsider. So that's all delusional practice. It's violating the very principles of the, of the Lojong. So there we are. Let's move right on. And I'm going to stop a bit early so we can have these two uh, antiques here that have been gradually collecting dust. I'll try to respond to those today. We'll just deal with one. Oh, but this is a very interesting one. Change your priorities, and this needs definitely some commentary. Change your priorities, but stay as you are. Change your priorities, but stay as you are. So, commentary. Mentally practice Donglen without ever disengaging from the practice, but let your physical and verbal conduct remain as it was. Now, that needs commentary. Uh, so... There's a lovely Kadamba. This is all embedded in the Kadamba tradition. And they have some wonderful aphorisms, so many, in fact. And they're quite famous, and they're quoted in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, the Kadamba principle. Uh, these are for these really hardcore yogis living in utter simplicity, really St. Francis, Francis style, living very simply uh, and just totally devoted to Dharma. No politics, no, 
no wealth, no riches, no big fancy anything, simply practicing Dharma. And that's why they're loved by everybody. They never got into politics or the stuff like that. And so one of the aphorisms of the Kadamba traditions, outwardly, so what do people see if they just see you practicing? Outwardly, um, demonstrate the ethics, the way of life of a renunciate. For example, of a monk, but you don't necessarily have to be ordained. Dom Dumba, the principal disciple of Atisha, wasn't ordained. He was a layperson. But outwardly, people observing you say, oh, but you're so nonviolent, and you're, and you're very kind, and you're very ethical. And you seem very sincere. I mean, you're really not getting caught up in samsaric hang-ups, and you don't seem to have much in the way of hedonic fixation. Um, you seem like a good practitioner there. Um, simple. You're one of those simple Buddhist monks. I've heard about those. Or a simple Buddhist nun, or a simple Buddhist practitioner. No big fanfare, but you're very nice, nonviolent. You're very sincere, and you're ethical, very caring. That's nice. That's what you show on the outside. No big deal, but good. Inwardly, bodhicitta. Inwardly, orienting all of your desires towards achieving in highest enlightenment so that you yourself can liberate all sentient beings from all suffering. Inwardly, quite grandiose, quite majestic, quite awesome. Right? Seeking to perfect generosity, ethics, and right on through the six perfections. Seeking to, you know, to fully manifest and realize the two bodhicittas. Like, whoa, that's... That's really impressive. If that's what you're really serious about, that's impressive. But you keep that internally. You're not talking about that. You know? That's quiet. That's your business. You know? That's inner. And secretly, you're a Vajrayana practitioner. But nobody ever sees your bell and dorji, your bell and vajra, your ritual implements. They don't see any sign that you're Vajrayana. They, they don't know. That's secret. That's your business entirely, innermost secret. Maybe you're practicing Vajrayagini or Kala Chakra or Guya Samaja. Maybe you're a Dzogchen practitioner. Really an authentic, deep product. But nobody knows. Outwardly, you say, oh, that's a really nice one. That's a, there, was a, there was a Geshe, a Galupa Geshe. I think I mentioned him earlier, but I'll be very brief now, and the time is running out. Um, everybody knew him as just a really good monk. He was just very pure, monk, really kept his, his, his monastic vows very purely. And he was very kind. People sense he was just a very warm-hearted, kind person. And he would recite Om Mani Peme Hung a lot. That's what they saw on the outside. That's, that's what his reputation. Good monk, very kind, very compassionate. Always talked about compassion. And he's just reciting Om Mani Peme Hung, Om Mani Peme Hung. And then he died. He achieved rainbow body. That was about 10 years ago. They saw that they, they, there was another monk who was a close friend of his. And, and when he passed away, he said, wrap, wrap his body in the outermost uh, robe of the monk, the one they, that the monks wear when they go for their special ceremonies, confession and so forth, confession ceremony. Wrap his body in that robe and don't touch it. But they watched, and rainbow light appeared, and the body disappeared, disappeared, and only hair and nails were left behind. That was about 10 years ago. And this uh, Roman Catholic monk, Francis Tiso, whom I know, he told me about this, and he also published an article on it. He interviewed people who saw it themselves. Not long ago, it was in, in Tibet, in Kham, eastern Tibet. So the, he was a perfect practitioner. Outwardly, nice monk, very kind, good-hearted, Omani Bemahong, cute guy. Inwardly, oh. that's the way to practice. Those are the authentic ones. So that's what he's talking about. Change your priorities. 
overcome the mental afflictions, craving, hostility, delusion, radically turn around the self-centered and the self-grasping, bring about this tremendous revolution from within, but outside, no big deal. No big deal. There was another monk. He was simply the, the chupa. The, the chupa. He was the ritual master. This was a monk in, uh, in Kat, right near Kathmandu. Not long, again, not long ago. Just maybe, I don't know, five to ten years ago. And, uh, but that's what he was. Good monk. Good monk. And he was the one that's doing all the ritual stuff. You know, he's making the, making the torma and making the butter lamps and doing this and doing that. And when the big lama would come in, give the empowerments, he's the one the attending and all of that. So good monk, a good worker bee monk, you know. When he died, he spent, what, five days in the clear light of death. So it's like playing poker. You know, okay, I'll bet 10 cents. Okay, you raised me five cents? Okay, okay, five cents. And then, uh, royal flush. <laughs> kept, kept, kept his cards close to the chest all the way until that's when the Lama shows his cards. You know? The yogi. Keep it close. And so, that's staying as you are. Uh, uh, but of course, now, it's a bit of interpretation, but you people are also smart. You don't, you don't really need to hear me say this. If you have some bad habits, if you're sarcastic, if you're abrasive, abusive, condescending, uh, violent, and so forth, of course you're going to change that. You know. No excuse. I mean, you are thinking, there's a loophole here. I know there's a loophole. <laughs> Finally, he gave me a loophole. I, I can relax now. I can be so the same jerk that I was before. No, that's a good idea to unjerkify yourself. But just come back to neutral. Little old me, you know, Clark Kent. Keep the Superman in the... In the uh, remember, young people, there used to be something called telephone booths. It was actually glass, and you'd walk inside of them, and there'd be a telephone in there. They were called telephone booths, and they were very useful for Superman. Because that's where he would change his clothes. This is why you don't see Superman anymore. <laughs> because everybody has a cell phone, and it's very hard to crawl inside a cell phone. You know? So that's why we lost Superman. I wanted to let you know, because you know, some of you have never, never seen a telephone booth. Oh, lasso. Tell us more, Grandpa. <laughs> so there we are. Don't verbally express your virtues to others or radically alter your behavior. I mean, basically showing off. You know. Rather, while bringing about a great change in your mind, do not draw others' attention to your practice or progress. And I've just seen that. I've just been witnessing that, especially well, for a number of very good Western practitioners. And, all, and yeah, really. I mean, it's... The Tibetans don't have a monopoly on it, but, but certainly all of the Tibetan yogis that I know, it's always that. It's always you know, just glancing away. Oh, never mind. No, no, I have no special, but nothing, nothing special, nothing special. And they feel so relaxed about it, not trying to make any impression. No impression at all. Gyatrudam, which is just the quintessence of that. He said, don't become like me. I'm an empty lama sitting on an empty box. Practice Dharma that I'm teaching, but don't become like me. Don't be a loser. Don't be big nothing, big empty lama. I have nothing. I have no virtues. I'm a joke. And when I die, I'm going to poop in my pants. That's what he said. We'll see. I kind of doubt it. Because he says a lot of jokes. But he never raises himself above anyone. Ever. And I've, and I've lived with him. I know what I'm talking about. So potas, poto, potoa, the great Geshe Potoa, is let your mind mature spiritually without others knowing of it. Keep it quiet. Just be quiet. And so in this regard, be, and I'll, I'm going to stop right here with this final note. Um, 
there is a, something of a radical difference here between the modern Western custom and Buddhist tradition regarding this point. Um, if you've ever applied for a job, <laughs> you're going to you know, some company and find for the job and say, okay, what qualifications do you bring to this job? Oh, nothing. I have no qualifications at all. <laughs> no excellence? No, 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 no excellence at all. I'm really, I'm really quite, quite a loser and incompetent, really. <laughs> You know, it's uh, every. Anybody have a CV? Oh, nothing special at all. You know, just little me. I mean, my CV is like you know two lines. I mean, nothing much. I didn't accomplish much. So we, it's part of our custom here. To at least you know, it can be exaggerated. Trumpeting one's own virtues is not part of Western culture, not an admirable part. But uh, there are definitely some differences there. Definitely some differences. So let's see if we can attend to these two questions before we're finished. One is, one is, it's a private question, but I can retreat it generic, generically. And that is um, if settling the mind in its natural state. Again, that's, that's the one that tends to most explicitly and in your face arouse the nyam, the dredging of the psyche, emotions, trauma, memories, and all kinds of stuff. And so when they become, but I did, did, did respond to this earlier because I had read this question earlier. Uh, then if you find that in the settling the mind in its natural state, you are being swallowed, you're being swept away, then back off. Remember the, the guerrilla tactic. When the enemy advances, I retreat. When the enemy retreats, I advance. So when you can, when you can face into the wind of whatever nyam are coming up, and you can withstand it, you're not swallowed by it, you're simply being present and, and letting it be, then by all means, that's good. But if you're being swept away, caught up in the current, caught, in the, caught up in the vortex of whatever's coming up, that's a time to retreat. So then back off. Go for a walk. Read something or engage in Tonglen, engage in some other practice, but you must be skillful in means. And this is what we've spent the last six and a half weeks doing, uh, being in this very conducive environment, a lot of interchange, uh, to become skillful. So that, and this is why we have a variety, not just one method that we do 10 hours a day. You have a whole array of methods, and that's a strength. And I, just, my, my, I must say, I'm just, I'm just utterly delighted myself to see how this is turning out with the, these four methods, Shamatha and the seven-point mind training. I don't think we've ever had a retreat this good just in terms of what I'm able to relay to you. And, and you know what the material is, so that's what I'm praising. But man, the practices are so good. And the balance is so wonderful. So I'm very, very content. And I had a nice conversation with, if I may say so, it's not pri nothing private about Marie, but I asked her, have many people come, you know, with major tr psychological issues? They, they really feel, need some major psychological counseling here, because deep stuff is happening. And the answer was, no. You're practicing. That's good. So you can direct your gratitude to Atisha. That's where it's all coming from. So final one, a couple of minutes. You mentioned that the Lojong is from the lineage of Atisha. I've always been oppressed by the many lineages in the different schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Does the lineage always trace back to a person? Or can it be to a, a monastery or school? Um, I don't know about always, but my sense is yes. Uh, and that is if we go to uh, the Nyingma school, it goes back to Shantarakshita, to Vimanamitra, to Padmasambhava above all and to Varochana, and to Kamalashila, and to... So, yes, it goes back to people, and then those people establish monasteries. If we look at the Kagyu tradition, it goes back to Tilopa, Naropa, Marpa, Milarepa, Gampopa, and so, yeah, people, and then they establish monasteries. The Sakya school, right back to Sakya Kungyansen, Kungyanyimbo, back to the patriarchs, the, fi the five greats, the Sachin Komanga, the five great patriarchs, they establish monasteries. 
Galupa, and then Atisha, uh, no big monastery, but established lineage. And then Tomtomtomba, the Kadampa tradition, Galupa, Tsongkhapa, who is really representing above all the Kadampa tradition, but also learned from all. He established multiple monasteries. And so that's how that happened. It goes back, but it's, but it's simply lineage, lineage. And Geshe Rapton, the teacher that I studied with and trained with for years in the 1970s, uh, he's being tremendous scholar, very erudite and very broad, is uh, addressing these four schools. He said, you know, these four schools, it's all like each one has a piece of gold, and it's equally gold, gold. It's 24 karat, whatever you want to call it. It's the same gold, but they shape them differently. So this one is shaped this way, a statue, and this one is this statue, and they're so different shapes, different emphases, different, different practices are highlighted, but he said it's all gold, and they've proven themselves over the last anywhere from 600 to 1,200 years, they've all proven themselves to be effective in leading people to enlightenment. So if one simply pays attention and looks at the history and the remarkable beings that have been nurtured, sustained, and grown through these practices, then any kind of basis for sectarianism is... is stupid, because the evidence is contrary. They all work. They all work. So there we are. Uh, can you tell a bit more how, how, and how or why a lineage starts? Somebody excel. the same way, like St. Francis. There he was. He's an interesting character. Uh, but St. Francis of Assisi. He was from a fairly wealthy family, and he was known as the life of the party. He was a real party, party guy. And they loved carousing and partying and having a good time. He was the one, he was the star of the party. Everybody looked at Francis, you know, good old Francis. Tell us another joke, do a song and dance. And uh, there he was in the midst of that. And then one day he was walking along and he saw a leper. And he was really creeped out by lepers. They, they, they look awful. I've seen lepers. Uh, and they don't look nice. But they're also contagious. And then just for him as an individual, he just found them really creepy. Just like, ooh, like that. And so he saw this leopard on the side of the road, and the first instinct was, whoa, keep away from that that's bad object. The it there is real, not, a, not a pleasing it. And then just something turned in him, something, a revolution. Somehow that clicked a revolution. And he just, he went 180 degrees around, and he came over, and I haven't memorized the story, but as I recall, he just gave him all his wealth right there, everything he had. He gave to the leper, and then I think he kissed his hand. But it wasn't just a show. He wasn't showing off. He wasn't, there was nobody there, the leper, and that's not a big deal to impress a leper back then. Um, that was just the beginning. And that, that, that was the beginning of actually not, not hairy renunciation. It led to an actual absolute turnabout in his lifestyle. And from that, that point on, he just went deeper, deeper into his practice. And... and then he, some people gathered around him, and then they applied to the Vatican. Could we have a little order here? Begin the Franciscan order. Then he met this remarkable woman, a Christian Dakini, I imagine, named Claire, and they became uh, sp deep spiritual friends. They're both celibate, but very deep spiritual friends. And so the order of Claire, I don't know, I think it was probably the order of St. Claire. So these two complementary orders, and they have, of course, they have flourished ever since then. Uh, well, it's exactly the same. A remarkable man, a remarkable woman. They draw people around them. They find that they have a lot in common, that there was a certain orientation and emphasis, the Franciscans versus the Dominicans versus the Jesuits and so forth and so on. Each has its own strength, its, you know, its, its highlights, its emphases. And you find the same thing in Hinduism, and I'm sure even though I don't know so much about Taoism, it's the same thing there. So that's how it happens. It's quite straightforward. 
And then in terms of, well, but which ones to choose? The Nyingma, and within Tibetan Buddhism, if you find, well, this is the, generally the school of Buddhism I'm really drawn to, but which shall I follow? Which of those four schools? That's like saying, if you really would like to get married, all right, there are a lot of very good women out there. Which one shall I, just tell me which one, which one shall I choose? You know? <laughs> Figure it out for yourself. You know? <laughs> it's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of saying, what are you really drawn to? What is helpful? What's transformative? What's beneficial? What arouses your faith and inspiration? Where are you receiving blessing? And then when you find that, you may find like my, myself, uh, that I've just been deeply nurtured by all four. Um, deep respect for all four. All of my teachers do, so what can I do? Um, or you may find that you just 100% you found everything in one, and that's just fine. A lot of my teachers are following only one. They're not sectarian at all. I don't have any sectarian teachers because I wouldn't follow any sectarian. But one is completely satisfying for them. Just like I was saying with Dujum, Dujum Lingba, this text has everything you need, but if you wish to look outside, why not? You know? uh, and so there you go. So you may follow one, you may follow two, you may follow all of four, but if you're going to combine, then it's good to have a mentor that can help you make sense of them. You're not slapping things together that don't really fit all that well. That's it. Oh, that's all. That's all, folks. See you tomorrow morning.